Welcome back to the Brainiac List pod. Talking still about this bloody guy, George Moore, Chapter 9. Techrific had this to say. Uh, now, George is doing a meta-analysis and an apology for his own bad writing that the critics has called him out for. I can't stand this man. I hate this. I'm actually angry at myself for spending money on this book for getting to read a decently formatted version. By the way, Bouvard et Pichet is actually a decent satirical novel by Flaubert. That's worth reading if you like that sort of thing. Well, I mean, anything would seem brilliant compared to George Moore. But um, we read a bit of Flaubert earlier, and it was good, Madame Bovary. I don't really remember much about it, but I don't remember hating it. So that's something. Um... But you're right, it is, it does make you angry, this book, like how, how bad it is. He just, it's just drip, it's just prattling on, you know? You know when you're in a room with someone and they're talking, 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 and you feel like they've had too much coffee or something, or they've just got something on their mind that they want to talk about, and you get the feeling that, are they actually talking to me, or are they just talking like I feel like they don't really care who's here they just want to say all these things and maybe not even to say them it's like are you just thinking right now but are you aware that these words are uh, you're saying them or are you just thinking you're having thoughts because you're saying all this out loud it's a bit like that like you know you you know you're writing all this down and he'll write things down that's like why wouldn't why wouldn't you edit that out why wouldn't you edit that out like, he'll mention something and say, oh, but I won't go into that now. I'll go into it later. It's like, well, then remove that whole bit. Then. Like, if you're mentioning it and then thinking, oh, actually, I don't want to mention that yet. I'll I'll come back to that later. Delete that bit of the book. <laughs> like, why is that there? Why do I have to read you going, hmm, should I talk about this? Nah. I got things to do, George. And then the, the the chapters are so long and so just there's just no structure to it, and I, you can see it's hilarious and so pathetic the way he will prattle on and on and on and on and on for an hour, and then at the end of the chapter he always kind of brings it's like he's kind of scrolled back up his own own writing and gone oh, what was I talking about at the start of this chapter oh yeah that. And then at the end, he'll just mention that thing again, as if that kind of like brings it full circle, like like the chapter was actually about something. But it starts, he'll, he'll, he'll just go back to the start of the chapter and go, um, oh, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, Singe and Lady Gregory. And then there's an hour of just random shit that it has no correlation to anything. And at the end, he'll, he'll come back to that topic of, uh, he'll just mention, and then that's why Lady Gregory and Singe, or whatever the topic was. And it's so bad. I cannot believe that this was edited, proofread, published. By whom? Like, who Who would ever find this good? Oh, it makes me so angry. Every time I talk about it, I get more angry. I want to, I want to make a prediction, by the way, that in the same way that this entire book has just kind of prattled along... It's just kind of, uh, I don't know, dawdled, meandered. I think it will meander until it just stops. Like, I think the, it'll just prattle, 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 end of book. There won't be any kind of, like, the last paragraphs of this book 
won't have that feeling where it kind of is wrapping up. You know, at the very end of a book, it kind of wraps up and the tone really shifts and you're like, oh, this is the end. This is the whole bringing it all to title in a knot and everything rounds off towards the end. I just feel like it will just prattle until the last sentence. And then maybe in the last few sentences, it will try to do something to indicate that it's at the end of a book. But I really think it is just going to drivel on until the final moments. It's just a, 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 a torrent of drivel for, for, for 50 hours. <laughs> and at some point, he just turned off the faucet, turned the tap off, and that's the end. It's like running a bath. He just turns the tap on, a bunch of shit comes out, and then after he, 50 hours later, he goes, oh, yeah, better turn that off. And he looks back at this bath, which is just a f- full of shit, and goes, awesome. <laughs> oh, I reckon other people would love that. That bath full of shit that I've just created. Weird analogy. I think on that note, we should probably keep reading. Um, Chapter 10. I cannot think that any two men ever bore names more appropriate to their character than Bavard and Pachette. Not even Don Quixote and Sancho Panza are not the vanity and kindliness of the stupid Bavard set forth in two heavy syllables, and do not the three little snappy syllables represented by the equal clearness, Pecochet's narrow intellect, and cunning on occasions again, the dissyllable Bouvard evokes indistinct outlines, pale, perplexed eyes, and a vague and somewhat neglected appearance, whereas we naturally associate Pikachu with a neat necktie, a pointed beard, and catchwords rather than ideas. Bouvard has tried to think out one or two questions, but Pikachu was content from his early youth with words. He began with nationalism, and when he met Bouvard, he picked up cooperation, the word, and when he got into the Department of Discovered Delegation, and heaven only knows how the word coordination got into his head, but it stuck there, and he could not get it out of his talk, bothering us all with it, but nothing lasts forever, and when he wearied of coordination, it happened to meet the word compromise, and this word must have been a great event in his life, for it revealed to him Pekashay of his dreams, a statesman, when which he always believed to be latent in him, and which more fortunate circumstances would have realised. It was a great treat to hear him on the subject of statesmanship the day that Sir Anthony MacDonald found himself forced to resign. I led him from Marion Square to Fitzwilliam Square over many bridges through Herbert Street around again and on again, leaving on him. I shouldn't have rushed to the sick riveners, but I could not resist the temptation to run up the steps of Plunkett's house to tell A.E. all about it, regretting all the while that my weakness would cost me many admirable pages. I should never be able to improvise it all again. My memory is wonderful, but I admit... But Pekachet's slumberous phrases, tall bent weeds and matted grasses with the snapping of the occasional aphorism of dead brand should be dictated at once and then to nearest Scrivener. I am paying dearly for the pleasure of your company. I can see you, A.E., answered his imagination, enabling him to see us in the walk, and his pit wit putting just the right words into his mouth. I can see you stepping over the pavement, stopping over the pavement edge, asking Pekachet to repeat one of the dead branch aphorisms. I see, I can see you hanging on his words with a sort of literary affection, and I could listen to you for a good deal longer, but I am due tonight at the Hermetic Society and must get home. Won't you walk a little way with me? The proposal that we should walk a little way together reminded me that the old bicycle that had carried Bouvard's ideas all around 
all over Ireland, so valiantly was now enjoying a well-earned rest in some outhouse or garden shed. A would not like to sell it for scrap iron or to buy another, or it may be that he thinks bicycle riding unsuited to a fat man. He has fattened. A great roll of flesh rises to his ears, and his interests have gone so much into practical things that we think the AE of other days is dead. We are mistaken. The AE of our deepest affection is not dead, but sleeping. An unexpected word tells us that he has not changed at all. Relieve him, we say to ourselves, of his work at the homestead. Loose him among the mountains, and in a few weeks he will be hearing the fairy bells again. And happy at heart, though sorry to part with him, I returned home to a lonely meal, hoping to find courage about eight to do some reading. A lecture was stirring in me as at that at time, a lecture showing that it is impossible to form any idea of the author of the plays. We can see Virgil, I said to myself, Dante and Balzac, but Shakespeare is an abstraction and as invisible as Jehovah. We know that somebody must have written the plays, but... Of one thing only are we sure that Sidney Lee is always wrong. But I will think no more. I will read. I took down the dreaded volume and a smile began to trickle around my lips as a picture of the dusty room at the end of many dusty corridors rose up before me with A.E. sitting at a small table teaching that there is an essential oneness in all the different revelations that eternity has vouchsafed to mankind. I returned to my chair and, falling into it, listened, hearing his voice getting calmer every minute, solemn and awe-inspiring when he commended toleration to the hermetics. You need not be, he said, too disdainful of the essential worshippers of Lachesius, better known in Dublin under the name of Christ. He too was a god. There were moments when it seemed to me that I could hear his voice refuting column who had ventured to remind him of Diocletian. It was not for its Christianity that the ancient creed had persecuted the new, but for its intolerance and profanity. There never was anybody like him, I said, and my thoughts melted into a long meditation, from which I awoke, saying, his conversion, or whatever it was, gave him such an iron grip on himself that when Indian mysticism flourished in number three, Upper Eli Place, he submitted his genius to the directors of the movement, asking them if they would prefer his contributions to the Theosophical Review in verse or in prose. The directors answered in verse, and A.E. wrote Homeward Songs. But even these would not have strayed beyond the pages of the review if his friend, Weeks, had not insisted that the further publication of these poems would bring comfort and peace to many, and it appears that these poems consoled the beautiful Duchess of Leinster in her passing as no other poems could have done. A.E. could have been a painter if he had wished it, but a man's whole life is seldom long enough for him to acquire the craft of the painter. And setting life above craftsmanship, he had denied himself the touch that separates the artist from the amateur. And he had done well. Accomplishment estranges from the comprehension of the many. And for the first time in the world's history, we get a man stopped midway by a scruple of conscience or love of his kindred which 
If he had devoted all his days to art, his Thursday evenings at the Hermetic Society would have had to be abandoned, and the editing of the homestead, too. He would not be a painter and write eight or nine columns of notes and a couple of articles on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. A man must have a terrible hold on himself to pursue the routine of the homestead week after week without hope of reward. And it is this uncanny hold that he has on himself that makes him seem different from other men. For though in many ways more human than any of us, he wears the air of one that has lived before and will live again. How shall I word it? A demonic air, using the word in the Gothian sense, a low hangren come to fight the battle of others. One day he announced to us that he was going to publish the verses of his disciples with a preface by himself, and we muttered among ourselves, Our beloved A.E. is going to stumble, but the volume was received by the English press as a complete vindication of the Celtic genius. Contrary, John answered all the effusive articles that appeared with one sentence. The English have so completely lost all standard of poetic excellence that anyone can impose upon them. A very materialistic explanation, which we were loath to accept, preferring to attribute the success of the volume to... There, I lost my place. What the heck? the demonic power that he inherits from the great theosophical days when he sat up in bed, his legs tucked under his nightshirt. He was offered some hundreds of pounds by Lord Dunzinny to found a review, but he had no time to edit it and proposed the task to John Eglinton. Contrary, John wanted to see life steadily and to see it whole, and Yeats came along with a sneer and said, I hear, Lord Dunsany, that you are going to supply ground soil for A.E.'s canaries. The sneer brought the project to naught, and Yeats went away laughing, putting the south of Ireland above the north and the east and the west, saying that Munster was always Ireland's literary portion. The first harpers of Ireland and the first storytellers were Munstermen, and his own writers came to him from Munster. He had gotten nothing from Dublin. Murray and Ray and Robinson had all begun by writing for the Cork Examiner and the Constitutional, and A.E. may search the columns of Sinn Féin forever and ever, without finding, I said, a blackbird or a thrush, a skylark or a nightingale. The portentous critic giggled a little in his stride down the incline of Rathmines Avenue and was moved to change the conversation from Sinn Féin, that journal having spoken of him disrespectfully since he had accepted a pension from the English government, Griffith, the editor of Sinn Féin, or ourselves alone, but had butted him severely in several paragraphs. Butted him is the word, for in appearance and mentality, Griffith may be compared to a ram. He butts against England every week with admirable perseverance, and while he butts, he allows all the poets of Rathmines to carol. 
A pretty banner, I said as we crossed the bridge, for Sinn Féin would be a tree full of small singing birds, caroling sonnets and rondeaux, ballades and villanelles, with a butting ram underneath, and this for device, believe that England doesn't exist, and it won't. Yes, there is an element of Christian science in our friend Griffith, Yeats answered, and we crossed the bridge. You don't think that A.E. will ever disclose anyone in Sinn Féin comparable to Singe? Yeats threw up his hands. It would be better, he said, if all his little folk went back to their desks. When this remark was repeated to A.E., he said, Colm was earning us £70 a year when he was at his desk at the railway clearing house, and now he is earning four or five pounds a week. So Willie says that I shall never find anything that will compare with Singe. We sh- well, we shall see. And... Every Thursday evening, the columns of St. Fiends were searched, and every little lilt considered, and every accent noted. But the days and weeks went by without a new peep, oh peep, oh sweet, oh sweet, until the day that James Stevens began to trill, and recognising at once a new songster A.E. put on his hat and went away with his cage, discovering him in a lawyer's office, a great head and two soft brown eyes looked at him over a typewriter and an alert and intelligent voice asked to whom he wanted to see. A.E. said that he was looking for James Stevens, a poet and a typist, answered, I am he, and next Sunday evening he was admitted to the circle and we were impressed by his wit and whimsical of mind, whimsicality of mind, but we thought A.E. exaggerated at the talents of the young man. True that all his discoveries had come to something, but it was clear to us that he was anxious to put his new man alongside of Singe, and this we could not consent to do. He was a little distressed to our apathy, our unwillingness, our short-sightedness, for he was certain that James Stevens was a new note in Irish poetry. Our Our visions were not as clear as his. I was conscious of little more than harsh versification and accrued courage in the choice of subjects. Contrary, John was confused and roundabout, and at the end of many an argument found himself defending the very principles that he had started out to controvert. It was clear, however, that he did not think more of James Stevens than we ourselves. Yeats was the blindest of all of us, and it was with ill grace that he consented to hear A.E. read the poems, giving his opinion casually, and when A.E. spoke of the advantage the publication of a volume would be to Stevens, he answered, For me, the ascetical question, for you, my dear friend, a philanthropic. A.E. was hurt but not discouraged, and to interest us he told us stories from the life of the new poet. He was a truer vagrant than ever Singe had been. Singe had fifty pounds a year, but Stevens, a poor boy without education or a penny, had wandered all over Ireland and would have lost his life in Belfast from hunger had it not been for a charitable apple woman. A.E. was delighted at the thought of the material that his pet would have to draw upon later, or on when he turned from verse to prose, for A.E. is divined that this would be so. James Stevens has enough poetry in him, he said to me, to be a great prose writer. But when he left the Apple Woman, I answered, always curious. A, you could not tell me how Stevens had picked up his education or had learned typewriting or shorthand and got employment in lawyers often at five and twenty shillings a week, while enough for a girl who was at home, but a bare sufficient for a man whose head is full of dreams and 
who has a wife and child to support his life, must have been very hard to bear without the solitude of a room in which to write his poems or intellectual comradeship until he met a friend always ready to listen to him, to be enthusiastic about his literary projects. What a door was open to him when he met A.E. Of what help A.E. was to him in the first prose competition, no one can help another with our poetry. None knows but Stevens himself. A.E. forgets what he gives, and if, but it is difficult for me to believe that Stevens did not benefit enormously as much as I did myself. Much How much that was, I cannot tell, for A.E. was always helping me directly or indirectly. Shall I ever forget the day when, after three weeks of torture trying to write the second chapter of Abe, I went down to Plunkett House to see if he could help me out of my difficulty? I am waiting for proofs and am free for an hour. If you would like, we will walk around Marion Square and you can tell me all about it. We turned to the east and walked along the north side, and it was opposite the National Gallery that he told me my second chapter must be in Victoria Street, and after a little argument, to which he listened very gently, he led me, and as a mother leads a child, I saw my error of my ways and said goodbye, I see it all goodbye, as well as anything I can think of, the anecdote shows how we run to our good friend in time of need and never run in vain, but now I find myself in a difficulty out of which I will not be able to help me, he is not satisfied with his portrait and complains that I have represented him in Avi and Salve as a blameless hero of a young girl's novel. Why have you found no fault with me? If you wish to create human beings, you must discover those faults." Wherefore I am put to discovering a stain upon his character, I cannot accuse him of theft, and he never speaks of his love affairs. He may be a pure man, but that is, be that as it may, it is not for me to cast the first stone at him lying and blackmail of what used to make charges that no one will believe. If he will not sin, why should he object to my white flower in his buttonhole, and feeling his humanity was on the whole very difficult and tiresome I fell to thinking, but of what I cannot tell, I only know I was awakened suddenly by a memory of a young painter in London who once who brought imagination and wit and epigram and laughter into our midst, and when he left, he rarely failed to ponder on the unmerited fortune of his wife, for to live with him always seemed to us as a reasonable share of the human happiness, but one day I made the acquaintance of this woman whom I had only known faintly during her married life, and heard from her that her husband did not speak to her at dinner, but propped a book against a glass and read, and after dinner sat in his chair composing, and often went up to bed forgetting to bid her good night as she reproached him here assured her that there was no other woman in the world he loved as much as her but being a man of genius his mind was always among his works but what proof have i she said that he is a man of genius of course if i were certain it would be different all the same it is a very very tiring she added and her case is the case of every woman who marries a man of genius a terrifying tribe especially at meal times ideas and food being apparently irreconcilable i have often regretted that our good friend did not leave some of his ideas on the landing with his hat and coat for it. It's distressing to hear a man say that he could not tell the difference between halibut and turbo when you have just apologised to him for an unaccountable mistake on the part of your own cook. This painful incident once happened to Eli Place in Eli Place, and I reflected duly that it, if it were indifferent to my food, he might show scant courtesy to the food that his wife provided. Excellent, I am sure it is, but a man of ideas cannot be catered for by friend or wife. I followed him in imagination all the way up to the long Rathmines Road and saw him picking a little from his plate and then, becoming forgetful, his eyes would rove into dark corners. His definition of ideas and formless spiritual essences in the room in 17 Rathke Avenue is full of them. 
Economic picture and poetic can I have a last blemish and one is enough for my portrait. A little irregularity of feature will satisfy my sitter. In the eyes of the world, absent-mindedness is a blemish. But if it be none in his wife's eyes, then there is no blemish. And I remember that he chose for her for her intelligence and is, is no mean one. She had abandoned her papistry before he met her and had written some beautiful phrases in her pages in the Theosophical Review and these won't won his heart. A very gracious presence and personality too, too distinct to seem invidious to her husband's genius or to deem it an injustice to herself that he should be beloved by all, but in his indifferent, exclusive indifference to money we may seek and find cause for complaint. It is possible that in his eyes the women have succeeded in marrying men of genius, he would apply his talents in increasing his income, for the common belief is that a man's life is not his exclusive possession to dispose of a pleasure pleases his goodwill, but a sort of family banking account on which his wife and children may draw checks. This is not ASU. He has often said to me, I came into the world without money or possessions and have done very well without either. So why shouldn't my children do the same? His life is in his ideas as much as Christ's and I will avouch that his wife has never tried to come between him and his ideas as much cannot be said for Mary, whom Christ had to reprove for trying to dissuade him from his mission, which he did on many occasions. But again, I am hoeing and raking, shoveling up merits instead of picking out the small but necessary fault. If I did dig deeper, perhaps my search will be rewarded. He gives his wife all the money she asks for, but she does not know what money he has in the bank. A.E. does not know himself, and feeling that A.E., was about to be born into my text a real man rather than an ideal one my heart rose and i said it is not long ago since he told me that he had given a man who had asked him for a contribution a long screed for which he could have had 30 pounds from a certain magazine in giving his screed for nothing he acted as all the great dispensers of ideas have done and the many will find fault with him for though they would like to have profits and money Poets, they would like them domesticated, each one bringing home to a little house in the suburbs of real of office chit-chat to unwind for his wife's pleasure, and the poet on one side of the hearth, the wife on the other, the cat between them, Jane and Mina would listen attentively, but Violet's thoughts would stray, and she would find herself very soon in Cuchulane, Cuolt, and Finn, and picking up from the table a beautiful book of fairy tales, I read them until I was awakened by knocking at my front door. The servants had gone to bed. Who could this be? Aye, hey, perhaps it was John Eglinton. Are you sure you aren't busy? If you are, don't hesitate. I was sitting by the fire, thinking, I am loath to disturb a thinking man, and he stopped halfway between the armchair and the door. I assure you I had come to the end of my thinking. On what subject? One that you will know very well, A.E. Among my portraits, he is the least living, and the le that is a pity. He does not silhouette as Yeats does as a dear Edward. Edward's round head and bluff shoulders of big thighs and long feet correspond with his blunt mind, and Yeats's solemn hide and heroic appearance authorise the literary dogmas that he pronounces every season. He is the type of literary fop and most complete that has never ever appeared in literature, but A.E., I wonder if we could get him into a phrase, John. After a while, I said, he has a kindly mind of a shepherd, and ten years ago he was thin, lithe, active, shaggy, and I can see him leaning on his crook, meditating. That is just what I don't think he does. He talks about meditation. 
but his mind is much too alert. There is this resemblance, however. The shepherd knows little but he the needs of his flock, and the other day, at Horace Plunkett's, I heard that A.E. exhibited a surprising ignorance in an argument with some English econom- economists. He did not know that Athenian society was founded on slavery. I am glad to hear it, for if he knew all the things that one learns out of books, I should never get him into literary silhouette. You admit, John said, inspiration in his painting, but you think it lacks quality, and in your study of him you will explain. Of course, a most important point, A.E. has come out of many previous existences and is going towards many others, and looks upon his this life as an episode of no importance. An interesting explanation, but the real one is, Dash, is what? I asked eagerly. He is too impatient, I told him so once, but he answered indignantly that there is no more patient man than he. I prefer my explanation, I answered. It is the more poetic, but temperament goes deeper than belief, John replied. Not deeper than A's belief in his own eternity, I said, and all my answer had the effect of rolling John for a moment out of his ideas. He'll soon be back in them again, I said to myself. At the end of another long silence, John told me that somebody had said that A.E. was an unhappy man. It never struck me that he was unhappy. He always seemed among the happiest, and I began to wonder if John Eglinton looked upon me as a happy man. You're happy in your work, but I don't know if you're happy in your life. And you, John, I said, are happy in your thoughts. Yes, he answered, and my unhappiness is caused by the fact that I get into little time for them to to enjoy them. It was pleasant for me, two old cronies, to sit by the fire, wondering what they had gotten out of life and when John bade me goodbye at the door. He admonished me to be very careful what I said about A.E.'s home life, but he asked me to tack him on to life, and now you think, since he had been tacked on, he won't like it. Damn these models, I said, returning to my room. Models are calamitous, and it would perhaps be calamitous to be without them. Shakespeare, too, is a calamity, and being and dismayed by the number of players I should have read, my thoughts turned to dear little John Eglinton, to the little shriveled face and the round head and a great deal of back to it and the reddish hair into which her grey is coming to the gaunt figure and I fell to thinking how his trousers had wound around his legs as he had walked down the street. It seemed to me that I should never find anything more suitable to my talent as a narrator and as a psychologist than his dear little man that had just left me dry determined and all of a piece valiant in his ideas and in his life come straight down from the north into the soft Catholic Dublin atmosphere, which was not, however, able to rob him of any of his individuality. The Catholic atmosphere was has intensified John Eglinton, bored him down as it were, made him sort of a leaf extract of himself, and I seemed to realise more than ever I had done before how like he was to himself. The well-backed head and the square shoulders and the hesitating puzzled look that comes into his face, I often sought a reason for that look. Now I know the cause of it because he gets so little time for his ideas. He does not wish to write them out any more than Steer wishes to exhibit the Chelsea figures. He arranges them and dusts them and sits among them conscious of familiar presences as they years go by. He seems to sink deeper into his armchair and his contempt for our literary activity strengthens. He is careful to hide the fact from us lest he should wound our feelings, but it transpired the evening I ran over to the library to tell him of ghosts craving for information on all subjects including even a little midwifery 
so that he might continue a little dribble of ink in the morning, he said, for John never lacks a picturesque phrase, but that is neither here nor there. The sentiment is expressed as his John Eglinton, a lack of faith in all things. Of late years, he seems to have been drawn towards Buddhism and goes out to a lonely cottage among the Dublin mountains in the hope that the esoteric law of the East may allow him to look a little over the border. I shall never find a better model than John Eglinton. It seems to me that I understand him and what a fine foil he would make to the soft and petri, peaky hide, the softness of all our natural products, a Protestant that Protestantism has not been able to harden. A moment after, I sat pondering on his yellow skull floating back from the temples, collecting huge, hugely on the crown, his black eyebrows, and a drooping black moustache, his laugh shallow and a little vacant, a little mechanical, and his words and thoughts casual as the stage Irishman. He... We would pick him out for a Catholic in a tram, and if there were a priest in the tram, Hyde would be interested in him at once, and he would like nothing better than to visit Clare Island with the batch of ecclesiastics, a dozen or fifteen parish priests, not one of them weighing less than fifteen stone, and the bishop eighteen. It would be a pleasure to Hyde to drop the words your grace into as many sentences as possible. Whether he would kiss the bishop's ring may be doubted. Being a Protestant, he could hardly do so, but he would fly for a pillow to put under his grace's throbbing head. On Clare Island, the parish priest would have prepared legs of mutton and sirloins of beef, chickens and geese, and Hyde's comment to his grace would be the hospitality of the Irish priest is unequaled. He will crack a bottle of champagne with any visitor. A gathering of this kind is very agreeable to the Catholic Protestant, and the Catholic bishop likes to do business with the Catholic Protestant better than with anybody else. The Catholic might stand up to him. There are one or two, perhaps, who would venture to disagree with his grace, but the Catholic Protestant melts like peat into fine ash before his grace's ring, but Hyde was always not was was not always Catholic Protestant. In the old Rose Common Glebe, there was sufficient Protestantism in him to set him learning Irish. He was has written some very beautiful poems in Irish, and it is to Hyde that we owe the jargon, since become so famous for the great discovery was his that to write beautiful English, one has only to translate literally from Irish. His prose translations of love songs of Connaught are as beautiful as Singer's, and it, it is a pity... He is stopped by Father Tom Finlay, who said, Write in Irish or in English, but our review does not like mixed languages. And these words and his election to the presidency of the Gaelic League made an end to Hyde as a man of letters. I took his measure at the banquet at the Shelbourne Hotel. His noisy demonstration in Irish and English convincing me that the potential scholar would be swallowed up in a demogue. demagogue. For the Gaelic League must make no enemies, and that the way to success is to stand well with everybody, members of parliament, priests, farmers, shopkeepers. And by standing well with these people, especially with the priests, Hyde has become the archetype of the Catholic, Protestant, cunning, subtle, cajoling, superficial and affable, and these qualities have enabled him to paddle the old dugout of the Gaelic League up from the marshes through many an old bog, lake and river, reaching the last Portobello Bridge, where he took on board two passengers, Agnes O'Farrelly and Mary Hayden, and having placed them in the stern, he paddled the old dugout to the steps of the National University. He gallantly handed them up the steps, and so amazed were the three at the salaries that were offered to them, 
that they forgot the old dugout and worn and broken and waterlogged it has drifted back to the original Connemara bog hole to sink under the brown water out of sight of the quiet evening sky unwatched unmourned save by dear Edward who will weep a few tears I am sure when the last bubbles arise and break and that's chapter 10 of this god awful book thanks for listening see you tomorrow